Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Today we're going to hear a wonderful story of God's grace and redemption, essentially taking our guest from prisoner to professor in just a moment. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be back after a bit of a sabbatical that I took over the holidays. I'm excited for you to get to hear from today's guest. I think his story and uh, what God has taught him is going to really encourage you today. But before we get to that, I wanted to take a minute and give you some updates about some things going on. I just got back from the Women in Apologetics Conference, which took place in California at Biola University, and it was just really sweet. I, I got to lead worship. I got to teach a breakout session. My breakout session was on something called the new spirituality. And basically, the new spirituality is good old-fashioned new age, but it's been given a bit of a modern makeover. So it's new age that's been rebranded and repackaged, mixed with uh, some Christianity. It can be a very confusing thing for Christians. It can be hard to kind of wade those waters. And so the reason that I gave my talk on that is because I recently contributed a chapter to an apologetics book for moms on the new spirituality. And so this book, I've talked about it before on the podcast, but it's been a while. So I want to tell you about it. It's called Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. And I think this is going to be a great resource for moms. It's written from moms to moms, how to interact with our kids about the cultural lies that they're going to encounter as they grow up. So we we tackle a lot of kind of tough topics. We we tackle Marxism and postmodernism, things that, you know, if you feel like you see these things in culture, but you're not sure you understand it fully or how to articulate, this is a great book for you as a mom. And so the two chapters that I contributed to, well, actually two and a half. So I, I wrote the progressive Christianity chapter and I wrote the new spirituality chapter and I contributed to the feminism chapter. And so the book is coming out June 4th. And so that'll, that's just after Mother's Day. So that might be a good belated Mother's Day present for the moms in your life. Or if you're a mom, get it for yourself. I think it's going to be a really helpful resource. The cool thing is that you can already pre-order the book on Amazon. And I think it's on sale too. I'd have to double check that. But it's called Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. If you go on Amazon and you just put in Mama Bear Apologetics, it'll it'll pop up and you can pre-order it. Yes, it is on sale. So normally it's going to be $16.99. 
uh, but it's on sale for $10.67. Can't beat that. So so go to Amazon and pre-order that book. Hopefully in upcoming podcasts, maybe I'll have Hillary on or some of the other contributors and we can talk about a little bit more about the book. But I wanted to make you aware of that now that that's coming out soon and you can already order it and on sale. Uh, the other uh, announcement I wanted to make is I've mentioned previously on the podcast that I'm working on a book on progressive Christianity. I had submitted a book proposal to some publishers, and it looks like I will be signing a contract here, I I think maybe this week or next week. And as soon as I sign that contract, I'll announce who it's with and and a little bit more about the book. But please be praying for me because I'm going to be spending the next several months just doing some really intensive writing and probably a lot more research and, and all of that good stuff. So keep me in prayer for that. All right, without any further ado, let's get into today's podcast. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Yuan, who has a powerful speaking ministry on faith and sexuality that has reached five continents. He's taught at the Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years and has a doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary. And what he's possibly most known for is his memoir, which he co-wrote with his mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. His newest book just came out in November called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Christopher, it's an honor to have you on today. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks, Elisa, for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. And uh, in a moment, I'm excited for my listeners to get to hear a little bit about your story. But first, I want to ask you about your newest book, about the motivation behind it. You know, there are many Christian books out there that deal with sexuality and in particular homosexuality. So what was it that motivated you to write this one and what's different about it? What, what sets it apart from uh, similar books? Yeah. You know, I I think as an author, you know, the last thing you want to do is just to to sort of, you know, say what other people have already said or, or done well um, I don't want to just put another book out there in, uh, and not to say, I, I think as a church, we need to be discussing this more and and especially more in, in gospel-centered ways. Uh, but I definitely don't want to do just something that other people have already done or done well. So, you know, having, I speak on this and write on this, what I saw, uh, what has been already done was either a uh, discussion about the handful of passages, maybe uh, six, and then you know other passages that they will talk mm-hmm. about as well in Scripture, Old Testament, and New Testament, and articulated well that same-sex relationships are not God's will. Uh, and then another group of books that would be, uh, I guess, a bit bit more practical, uh, talking about maybe how to be um, uh, to minister to those who have same-sex attractions or to reach out to the gay community. Um, how to be a good friend to someone who has same-sex attraction. So I would say that's a bit more like practical theology. But what I saw was this kind of middle ground that is supposed to connect uh, kind of the ethics and the the biblical studies to praxis, and that is grounding it in good systematic biblical theology, Mm. which is essentially looking at all of Scripture, and we'll say, instead of saying just looking at particular passages and, and exegeting that and, and explaining what those say and don't say, but looking at all of Scripture and saying, what does all of the Bible say about sexuality in general? What does the whole Bible say about 
um, about who I am, my identity. What does the whole Bible say about marriage? Since that's that's the big debate now. What's the what does the whole Bible say about singleness? So that's that was my burden, and, and essentially, I wanted to write a book that anyone would could pick up and say, you know what, I you know I picked this up for my my gay son, and man, I learned so much about myself. Hmm. Well, that's great. And, you know, you are so equipped to talk about this subject. You have quite an amazing story mm-hmm. uh, that, that led up to you becoming a Bible teacher. Can you give listeners who may not be familiar with, um, you know, how you came to faith in Christ? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I was not raised in a Christian home, uh, but I wrestled with the secret I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. I came out of the closet in my early 20s, which I think is a little bit later than uh, average today. Mm-hmm. I came out of the closet, broke the news to my parents. Remember, you know, they weren't Christian. But amazingly, through that crisis, my mother came to faith in just a very dramatic way. My then father did as well. But I went in the opposite direction, wanted nothing to do with their, you know, what I saw as crazy <laughs> new mm-hmm. religion. Um, and I thought, good for them, not for me. Uh, I actually eventually was, uh, got involved in drugs. I also began selling drugs. Well, it wasn't until about three months before I was to graduate from dental school. I moved to Louisville, uh, to do, to go to dental school to pursue my doctorate in dentistry. I just three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the school expelled me. So I moved to Atlanta, kept doing what I, at that time, what I knew how to do best to make money, and that was to sell drugs. I became a supplier, uh, and my parents, they, they didn't know that I was selling drugs, but they knew above everything else, anything else, that I needed to know Jesus Christ. Hmm. That even my sexuality was not the biggest issue, but my biggest issue was to know Jesus Christ. And you know, Elisa, this is the, this is the interesting thing. We hear the narrative today in media, in our movies, uh, that Christian parents do not love their children, that they reject them. Mm-hmm. Only non-Christian parents uh, are able to love uh, you know, their gay children. But let me tell you, I had the exact opposite experience. My parents as non-Christians rejected me. It wasn't until they became Christians that they knew that they could do nothing other than to love their gay son as mm-hmm. Christ loved them, even when they were sinners. So that was really uh, enlightening. You know, I, I really believe when someone truly understands the grace of God and the power of Christ to redeem us, uh, you know, based on nothing that we did, we, we will, of course, be able to love sinners even our children who are sinners. So I, my, my parents prayed for a miracle. My mother fasted every Monday for seven years, once fasted 39 days on my behalf. Wow. And she prayed for a miracle that God would do whatever it takes. And that miracle came with a bang on my door, opened up my door, and there were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. So I was caught red-handed, and they, I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. So I found myself in jail and I was walking around the cell block. And of all things, I found a Bible in the trash can. It was a Gideon's New Testament, took it back to my cell, began reading it. I mean, I didn't have anything better to do. So I began, and God began to radically transform 
you know, uh, you know, God's word is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it began to convict me, showed me of my sin, not, not only just that I was rebelling against the government, rebelling against my parents, but I was rebelling against a holy God. Mm. I kept reading. Um, I got some news as well that I was HIV positive, And that was really the darkest, deepest moment. I um, kept reading God's word. And I realized that I had put my identity in the wrong thing. You know, my whole world was gay. All my friends were gay. I lived in a gay apartment complex. I went to a gay Kroger. I went to a gay gym. The world was telling me, this is who you are. And I believed it. Mm -hmm. And that message is stronger now more than ever. And honestly, it's, we have bought into it, even in the church, where even people will say, I'm a straight Christian, as if that's who we are. But to be honest, sexuality is not who we are, it's how we are. And that's a big difference. Because until we grasp who the, our true identity, which is that we are image bearers of God, that we are created in God's image, and that that image has been distorted, but also now that Christ has come when we put our faith in him, Christ not only forgive us of our sin, but he's come to restore that image, um, that our identity needs to be in him, not in anything else. That was so key for me because... I needed to first understand that before I could separate my sexuality from who I was and then be able to then distinguish my sinful behavior from who I was. So that was probably the most important step that God transformed in my mind, that I had put my identity in the wrong thing. Hmm. And, um, and so God kind of renewed my mind, and it wasn't instantaneous. It took time. And um, I got out of prison, felt called to ministry. God gave me a clear call to ministry. Uh, so I applied to a Bible college in Chicago, a Moody Bible Institute. Um, I was accepted. I went one month right out of prison to Moody. And um, I got out, went out, got my master's in exegesis, got my doctorate in 2014, and co-authored this book with my mother. And it was then that I kind of introduced this concept of holy sexuality and that my first book and I knew that I needed to flesh that out eventually, and, and this is how I came with uh, this new book. Well, your story is so powerful, and particularly what stands out about it to me is that, you know, here you are, you're dealing drugs, you've been put in prison, you find a Bible in the trash can, mm -hmm. and you start reading it, and mm -hmm. you weren't indoctrinated at any kind of so-called conservative seminary with what the Bible has to say and how do we interpret these verses? And because I think often that that can be the narrative is that people only think that the Bible s says what it says about sexuality because we've just been told that for so long or that that's just the the echo chamber we're in. But here's here's someone who literally found a Bible in a trash can and started reading it and became convicted about uh, about that. So it, when you when you read some of these revisionist arguments about some of this stuff, what's what's your reaction when when you read some of the um, you know the, the fairly fleshed out theology that the revisionists mm -hmm. have brought about you know oh, hey Paul didn't even know what this was this wasn't a category back then things like that you know what would you say to someone who might be reading kind of both sides going I don't, I don't know who's right about this about what the Bible says yeah <clears throat> you're exactly right Elisa and, and and I wasn't you know able to share all the details but I will share you one part very important to this to the point that you're making is you're right I was not a Christian so I didn't have 
you know, solid biblical training. Like, you know, Elisa, you were raised in the church. So you had, you went to church, you know, you, your parents, you know, taught you about Christ. You know, you had a Bible. I had none of that. So I had no background. I didn't have any of that great training, you know, preach from the pulpit, uh, which sometimes also can come up with a little baggage. Sometimes of the, you know, maybe overreaction, you know, the stigma against anyone who's gay simply for being, or even someone having same-sex attractions, but I didn't have any of that. So I came in uh, with no understanding. And what's even more interesting, you know, yes, I found that Bible in the trash can, but a little little bit after that, a few months after that, I opened up to my chaplain because I, I was reading the Bible and I said, there's these passages that seem to condemn homosexuality. So I asked the chaplain, I opened up to him. I was not open about my sexuality in prison because I, I was afraid. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't know what would, you know, I, I didn't want to peg me a certain way. I opened up to him and he was a revisionist. Wow. He gave me a book, a book by John Boswell, not, not his, the big one, but the one about medieval, uh, kind of how he believed that, uh, there were same sex relationships in medieval times. Mm-hmm. In the church, uh, which I, I don't, I don't think he's right. But um, and even if that that was right, that doesn't mean just because it happened in the past that it's right. <laughs> That's another thing. Yeah. Just because church hist- it's part of church history doesn't make it right either. Um, but he was he gave me a book to convince me, and he wasn't like a big. He he just was. Here's a book you can read it, and everything inside of me wanted both. Right. I mean, yeah. isn't that what our flesh wants? We want our flesh and eat it. We, we want our cake and eat it, too. Mm. I wanted to have justification, not just justification, but biblical justification so that I wouldn't I didn't have to change. I wanted God and my gay community and my same sex partner. I wanted that both. But this is the miracle of how God gave us the indwelling Holy Spirit that abides in us, that his, his, the Holy Spirit, as scripture says, is to convict us of sin. And I look back and I, I too see it as a miracle that it was the Holy Spirit that guided me into truth. He did his job. The Holy Spirit guided me into truth and made me realize, took the blinders off my eyes to see that these books that are explaining these ways. So yeah, you're, for example, so Paul, you know, he was ignorant. You know, when people say that Paul did not maybe fully understand sexuality as we know it today or was not writing about sexual orientation, what they reveal is that they do not hold to the doctrine of inspiration. Right. Inspiration is that the Bible is not simply written by a bunch of human beings. It's written by the Holy Spirit who moved in the, in, in the biblical writers to record God's truth. So we could, let's just hypothetically say that Paul was ignorant and he didn't know our modern concept of sexual orientation. And, and that's, let's just say that could be possible. I don't believe it because, because he was inspired by God and um, and more importantly, let's just, you know, even if he wouldn't know the modern concept, he definitely knew about the concept of a sinful orientation, sin nature, flesh, which he writes about in the New Testament. But let's say he didn't. It's something totally different to say that God was ignorant. Right. I mean, even say <laughs> that's heresy. Yeah. So I think people kind of reveal their ignorance about the doctrine of inspiration, you know, that, that the, you know, there was, you know, or people even say, 
they'll they'll sort of uh, deconstruct the, the, what the Bible, the English Bible, say about homosexuality. That the term wasn't really coined. Uh, you know, the, the phrase homosexual or heterosexual that those two words weren't coined until German psychologists came up with it in the mid 1800s. So it wasn't inserted into the English Bible until later. Uh, you know, about in the 19, early 1900s. Well, that is true, but the mistake people make is that though there was no English word, it definitely was a concept that was known. Right. It was a concept that was known before um, the word homosexual, heterosexual uh, was created in a sense in, in the German language. Uh, it was known by the biblical writers of the Old Testament and the New. They just didn't have a specific term. They used phrases um, instead to describe it. In your latest book, you use a big term, theological anthropology. So <laughs> yeah. unpack that a little bit for us. What does that mean, and how does that relate with uh, our identity? Yeah, oh, so much. And and yes, I, I, I've... I tried to uh, my first book, which is which was a memoir, uh, very easy read. I you know uh, my mother I co-authored it with my mother, which was an enormous blessing. So she wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. She wrote she she wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters. Um, and uh, my mom always tells people don't read it late at night because then you'll m- m- lose some sleep. It's you know people just say it's it's very easy to read. It's kind of a page turner because it's just our story. Yeah. So we look at our first book as something that hits the heart. Um, my second book, I intentionally wrote it, uh, to kind of challenge us. So kind of, you know, it's, it's for the head, but it's also for the hands. I wanted to stretch the reader, uh, and take kind of the cookies off from the top shelf, uh, and bring them down to kind of, you know, a lower shelf. So people would have to reach a little, but to be able to get the goods, um, I, I want this essentially is a book on a theology of sexuality, which oftentimes scares people. But and people sometimes say, I'm not a theologian, but that's actually not true. I really believe every one of us is a the- theologian because if theology is essentially knowledge of God, if you are a Christian, you have to have not some knowledge of God. I even argue that atheists are theologians. Mm. They just have the wrong theology of God. Yeah. <laughs> Bad theologians. So uh, anth- uh, theological anthropology, yes, it's a big phrase, but if we break it down, so anthropology is essentially knowledge of, um, anthropology is essentially study of humanity. Um, and, uh, you know, it's how do we understand who we are? Theological anthropology is studying who we are through the lens of God's word. So that isn't like the kind of secular study of anthropology where they kind of study people groups and kind of just do historical analysis. And they really start with, uh, that there is no God. There's a very atheistic, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, undercurrent, especially in the discipline of anthropology. Theological anthropology admits that we can't understand ourselves without first understanding God. That's that's actually Calvin. He, he says that. <clears throat> so theological anthropology starts with who we are. Who am I? Because I, I argue that identity, sexual identity is 
actually a false understanding of who we are. And if that is, then who are who are we? And that begins with Genesis 1. We are created in the image of God, but that image has been distorted by sin, Genesis 3. So that's core to understanding sexuality. Why? <clears throat> because one big question that people often say is, people are born gay. Or an individual might say, I've had these feelings, or I've been this way for as long as I remember. So therefore, this is who I am. It must, you know, God made me this way. And when they say that, they don't really understand theological anthropology. Because yes, we are all created in the image of God, whether we know Christ yet or not. But that image has been distorted by the fall. We call that original sin, the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve is that we're guilty, all of us. We all have sinned in Adam, and now we have a distorted nature. What Paul talks about is a sinful nature. So when someone says, I've been this way as long as I remember, well, I would say you're right. Yeah. You've been a sinner for as long as you remember. Right. <laughs> we are all born into sin, as David says in the Psalms. Mm. Yeah, that that's, that's so important, I think, for all of us to grasp, because all of us in some way are broken sexually. We're all broken and, you know, we all distort that image of God. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's such a great bedrock to build the foundation on. And in this whole conversation regarding sexual identity, I think like you mentioned earlier that even growing up in church and, and learning biblical concepts can also come with ba baggage and certain ways where we, we look at things. And I think that some of us as Christians can be confused about certain issues regarding this conversation. So I, I mean, I, I think many con Christians, most conservative Christians would agree that lust is a sin and that same-sex yes. sexual behavior is sin. But when it comes to same-sex attraction or an orientation toward that, uh, there can be a bit of confusion. That's where yes. the waters get a little bit muddy. So in your book, you offer some clarity on this and uh, you use a lot of biblical terminology, words like desire, temptation, and sin nature. And this is actually something I've been giving a lot of thought to myself, um, just the differences between what is desire, what is temptation, and when does that become sin? So can you break that down a little bit for us? What, and also, what do you mean when you write that all desire has an end? Yeah. So um, you, you, where where that came from uh, and why I wanted to put an emphasis upon same-sex attraction and, and breaking that down and then using, deciding to use desire and temptation is because um, I think there's this misunderstanding, and, and I will totally admit I was one of them. I misunderstood this. I would say same-sex attractions are not sinful. And the reason why um, I think that's incorrect is because we say that without really defining what is attraction. Mm. I equated attraction with temptation. But as I thought about it some more, I thought, well, actually, attraction could also be a desire. So I needed to know uh, what, it, you know, is temptation sin, is desire sin, before I kind of make this broad statement. See, actually, I think... Much of the confusion today um, among evangelical Christians, because there's even discussions now, debate about is same-sex attraction sin or is it not? How about sexual orientation? Is that sin or not? Um, should we identify as gay or not? So there's there is a lot of questions about 
among evangelical Christians who say that same-sex relationships are sinful. So there's there's you know, what we would call nuance in that. Mm-hmm. And um, I real I I thought you know I think that just the confusion and we can get more clarity is if we just define our terms or simply use terms that are already used in scripture like desire and temptation. So I fleshed out I first talked about temptation and I, and I and I kind of explain how temptation in and of itself is not sin. Jesus Christ was tempted in every way the the writer even writes. So that can't and that is not sin but however um it can easily slide into sin. I mean, just in a moment. So we need to, we can't toy with sin. I, I, I minister to a lot of young men who, who are wrestling with same-sex attractions or just, you know, as a professor at Moody, you know, guys who just struggle with heterosexual lust. And I, I kind of see people on either extreme. One, either they are just beating themselves up that they are simply tempted. They're not acting on it, but they think God doesn't love me. I'm just dirty, I'm just awful, and, and they, they, they're just so angry at themselves or just, you know, they, they're so down, and I'm telling them that actually you're no different than anyone else. We're, like you said, Elisa, all of us are broken. We yeah. all struggle with sinful temptations. But the other extreme are then guys or, or gals who say, well, temptation is no big deal, and that, yes, it's it's not a sin, but when they say it's no big deal— what they do is they begin toying with temptation and letting that temptation fester and turn into sin. So we need to avoid either extreme. We need to know that I'm not going to, you know, hit myself over the, you know, over the head simply with being tempted, but I'm not going to toy with it and I'm just going to run as fast as I can from that. Yeah. Then temptation turns into desire. So I talk about desire and because I, I often hear that, okay, desire is not sin or att- temptation or attraction isn't sin, but lust is. What's so interesting is as I studied desire in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I realized that actually the word desire in Hebrew and in Greek is the same word that is translated for covet in the Old Testament and lust in the New. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, whoa, that just changed my whole concept thinking desire you know turns into lust no actually uh lust is wrongly ordered desire doesn't desire doesn't turn into lust Uh, lust is actually bad desire so uh that's when i had to think well what is good desire what is bad desire i mean you know god desires god desires that all would be saved so that's a good desire we desire god you know we hear throughout the psalm so those are good desires but actually most of the time that the bible talks about desire it's not good desire (laughs) it's you know we have bad desires that's why then the then the translators we translated into lust so i had to realize well what makes desire bad you know that that it's that it's lust, that it's sin. I realize that it's it, it has to do with what it is that we are desiring, the object. But it's more than that. It's not only the object, but what we intend to do with that object. Mm. So, for example, in the garden, um, if you know Adam and Eve desired the fruit, well, desire, what do they want to do with it? If they just desired it in a way 
to be a symbol of God's headship over them, that they desired to see its goodness, that they, that they saw it as a reminder that, uh, that they were under a holy God and that they had, that he provided good, holy uh, guidelines for us to follow for our own good. That's a good desire. But if it's desire to take and eat of it, something that is against what God said, that's a bad desire. So it's not only the object, but it's also the purpose. That's why I talk about that desire has an end. Mm. Not only an end as an object, what is it that you're desiring, but what is the purpose? Um, the Greek word for end is telos. Telos not only means end, but it means purpose or goal or aim. So all our desires has an end. If you think about it, we, we can't have a desire without any, um, you know, end goal. You know, like I desire chocolate. Mm-hmm. I desire, you know, uh, you know, a car or money or uh, I desire God. There's an object, but also what I want to do with it. Like I desire God to worship him. Uh, here's a good example to show you the difference between um, desires that have an end that can be good or bad. So, for example, a father, he has a desire for his daughter to love her, to treat her, um, and to teach her to fear the Lord, to spend time with her, to show her how precious she is in God's eyes. Those are good, holy desires. However, if you have a father that desires his daughter in bad ways, he wants to abuse her or you know, do things that he should not do to her, then those are bad desires. So it's not only the object, but it's also the purpose. So that kind of fleshes out what I mean by our desire. And that, I think, helps us then to differentiate. I think every day we need to be careful with our desires, that our desires don't have a wrong end. Uh, And when they do, we need to flee from those. And what um, the reformers, you know, talked about put to death. Yeah. You're indwelling sin. Paul talks about that in Romans. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Yeah, that that is such good stuff. And it's just as I'm sitting here listening to you talk, it's so applicable to just to any sin that mm. that someone might struggle with, no matter what it is. You know, I think sometimes we we tend to just put things in these really neat and tidy categories, like it's not yeah. a sin until I actually perform the act, whatever it may be. But actually that, that sinful stuff can start long before that. And we see this with Jesus on the Mount, uh, on his Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about, it's not just committing the act of adultery, but if you're, you have lust for her in your heart, you've already committed that sin. And I think that speaks to kind of what you're saying, that exactly. it's really the trajectory that you're going. And, and if you let those things fester, uh, it's not always just doing the act, whatever it may be, but but it can start in our hearts and our spirits long before that. That's really, really good stuff, really helpful stuff. I'm going to be thinking a lot about that after this, I think. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that most people who are listening to this today have very practical applications for what we're talking about. They have a friend or a family member, a loved one who identifies as gay. What would be your advice to Christians? How, how can we best love our gay friends? What, what should we do? What should we not do as, as we as Christians seek to love them uh, with the love of Christ? Yeah. You know, it's, I don't think we can, you know, go through life anymore without, uh, you know, we're thinking we can avoid this question today. We're in, new, in a new world. If we 
uh, work out, you know, in the workplace, if you are a student, if you are engaging the world and inviting your neighbors over, you know, to your home, this is going to be a reality for many people, either whether themselves, they identify as gay or they have children, loved ones, relatives who, who are gay. So we, we can't run from this anymore and think that, oh, this is, and even this is not even just something in the world. This is something that we are wrestling with as well. So I, I think that there needs to be things that, that we need to be careful with, um, that we we can't expect others to think the way that we think because they don't have the holy they, – they have a darkened understanding as Paul talks about in Ephesians, as we all did. Um, so yeah. just as when we go and minister to overseas or to unreached people groups, we need to learn their language. There's a language for different people groups. And I'm not, not going to say I don't believe that – uh, the gay community is is um, is a correct people group in the sense that it's equivalent to race or um, or even uh, male female. You know, it's I don't see it in that way. However, guess what? The world does. <laughs> There's no way mm-hmm. around it. Uh, the world has created a new category for personhood when they talk about sexual orientation, which is one way reason why I. I resist that term and don't think that that is a correct term for Christians to use. But still, the world sees the gay community as an actual community. Um, and just as we reach out to you know, different communities, we need to learn their language, their vocabulary, and avoid certain vocabulary. So, for example, I wouldn't use uh, the term lifestyle and choice. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> that I hear that often. Uh, among Christians. Yeah. And, and it, I, I understand this. I, it it kind of makes sense because we are differentiating between the person and their behavior. So we say, you know, someone lives a homosexual lifestyle. So we're differentiating between this is who a person is and they're created in God's image. They have a sin nature, but then their behavior is sinful. So, so we get that. So that's, I mean, that's correct for us, but guess what? It's offensive to our gay friends. It's a, to our Mm -hmm. lesbian daughter. Here's the fact. I never used those words when I lived as a gay man. I never said I live a homosexual lifestyle. I never said I chose to be gay. The reason why comes back to kind of the beginning of this podcast, identity. I saw this as who I was. So Christians, when we begin with, you know, with our gay friends or loved ones, uh, and when we begin, when we talk to them about this, that about their sinful behavior, they don't hear us saying what they're doing is sin. What they hear us saying is we've just called their entire person, their core of their being, sinful, an abomination, uh, you know, disgusting. That's what yeah. they hear, and that's why they're so offended. So therefore, I think— Don't use those terms. I actually would steer the terms more into who are we? So, you know, tell me more about being gay. I mean, it's actually good to ask questions. I would also avoid a phrase that we often use, love the sinner, hate the sin. I hear this a lot. You know what? I see this all the time when I speak as well. And I get people who come up to me and be like, oh, my, I did a lot of things wrong. And I'm like, 
that's okay. We all do. But, you know, that's why apologies are so good. Say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I, you know, maybe hurt you and use these words or whatever. But that phrase, again, it is a truth. We should, as God loves us, even when we were sinners. That comes right out of Romans 5. But don't say that to to an unbeliever or don't say that to your gay friend. Because I tell people, when, when you say, I love you, but I hate your sin, they don't feel loved. Right. And we don't say that to other, to other people, right. you know, like other non-Christians in our lives. Hey, by the way, just so you know, <laughs> you yeah. know, I love you, but I hate your sin. I mean, we, right. we, we tend to kind of do that with one specific group, which can just throw up unnecessary barriers. Exactly. Exactly. So we, we, you know, at the end of the day, our gay son, our lesbian daughter, our cousin who's gay, our coworker who's gay, you know, their main issue, their main sin is not being in a same-sex relationship. Their biggest issue is fully surrendering to God. For for myself, right. my biggest sin was not same-sex relationships. My biggest sin was unbelief. That is what separated me from God. And if we see that as the biggest issue, we won't make homosexuality, the biggest thing that we're talking about, we will make the fact that they have yet to believe in Christ or they are believing in a false gospel. You know, like the revisionists, they say, oh, I know God. But if you see their behavior and it does not line up with God's word, then they're believing a false gospel. And then we need to treat them as unbelievers and share them the true gospel uh, share them. Sometimes, sometimes we need to first live the gospel before we preach the gospel. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff, because I was going to ask you about that as well. So I'm glad you you mentioned that, because I think that it can be almost easier, in a sense, with our unbelieving friends, because we don't expect the world to be Christians. But when we have friends who identify as Christian, who are affirming and revisionist, that can be a difficult um, path to kind of maneuver. So, um, So that was really helpful, what you said there. Just as we close out here, you place a lot of emphasis on the local church, that this should be the main place this ministry is is happening to, to people who okay. experience same-sex attraction, and which I, I think, you know, many of us Christians would agree the church hasn't always gotten this right. We, we've neglected this area. We, we haven't always gotten it right. So why do you think that is? Why do you think this has been neglected in the local church? And, and what advice would you give to pastors who are wanting to minister to people in their congregation who who have this particular struggle? Yes. The reason why I, I wanted to put a strong emphasis upon the local church, um, and this is, I think, another reason why I think my book, uh, I wrote my book to stand out a little bit, is because I saw that lacking. There was not a strong emphasis upon the local church, especially uh, the books that have been written, um, you know, five years ago, ten years ago. It was very practical oriented, praxis, and and sometimes it would be, you know, encouraging people to to join a support group or to see a counselor, and 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 I think those, you know, having community, of course, is very important, but. You see, we need to diagnose the problem. If if you're if you're sick, Elisa, uh, and you go to the doctor, one of the first things you want to do before the doctor treats you is you want the doctor to diagnose you correctly. Because if you have the wrong diagnosis, right. you're not going to have the correct treatment. Honestly, I think we have diagnosed this incorrectly, where we have viewed this as a disorder. We view this mm. as a psychological problem that something happened in your childhood. 
or uh, maybe your parents, your father didn't spend enough time with you. He was absent. Maybe your mom was a little bit overbearing or controlling. And so that is what turned you you know, gay or what people would say, uh, or, or, you know, someone to have same sex attractions. Well, we've diagnosed that incorrectly because the real, this is the truth. Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. You can't get around the old Testament, the new Testament to see that same sex sexual behavior is sin. It's not a, you know, disorder. And if it's, Sin, well, I know the core problem is my sin nature. And if sin nature is the problem, well, then Jesus Christ came as the solution. And so like you say, the answer can't be found in elsewhere other than the local church. God gave us Christ and the body of Christ, which is the church, to be the answer for our sin. So I often see where people, when they find out they have a gay friend, what they immediately do, and especially pastors— they will refer out and out mm. of the local church. So they're getting their main help from someone else who's not a pastor, who does not have spiritual headship. And yet, if sin is a problem, well, of all people, pastors should be experts in helping sinners, right? I mean, right. that's what we should be trained as ministers of the gospel. Um, if and, and, and yet I, I hear this excuse because I'm, I'm going to – I like to kind of think devil's advocate, right? I hear people saying, well, wait, I don't have same such attractions myself. You know, I, I had this guy come up to me or this – you know, my uh, young lady came up to me and she, we've been best friends for a long time. But I don't have same such attractions, so I don't know how to help her. But you don't have to be an expert to help someone struggling with sin. If you yourself – are a follower of Christ, and if you've had any victory over your own sin struggles by Christ, by the power of, you know, the Holy Spirit, then you can help another individual. So as, you know, when pastors tell me, you know, what can I do? Well, disciple them. <laughs> my last chapter in my book is on discipleship, because that's really the answer. Uh, and, and it's not simply... And sometimes we confuse discipleship because I even hear people say, oh, I'm discipling. And I, and I look at what they're doing. I said, that's actually not real discipleship, um, you know, where just being a friend, that's not discipleship. Even my best friend and we're accountability partners, that's not discipleship. We're, there's no yeah. headship there um, or like a support group. That's not discipleship. Even counseling, that's not discipleship. Uh, true discipleship is, you know, what, what we, and we need to have a better understanding of that as well. And, and discipleship happens primarily in the local church. It doesn't have to be a pastor, but I think that would be a, a very good way, but it can be an elder, a church leader, um, someone who is guiding us essentially as a shepherd. And that's really obeying the great commission. We sometimes under misunderstand that. We think, that the Great Commission is go and make converts. <laughs> it's right. more than that. It's go and make disciples. Yeah. And, sit, and I see that as really being the key. That is discipleship and it's the local church. That is great stuff. That is a lot to chew on and think about. The book is called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Christopher, thanks so much for taking the time to offer your wisdom on these questions. And I just pray that God continues to bless your ministry. Thanks so much, Elisa. You too.
enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.